another dying for you, Mr. Songman. Sing the loneliness of broken dreams away if you can. This is Doty Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there, and welcome again to another podcast from the Madison Isthmus. It is a weekend where we had some sunshine. We had a number of rain showers that came through both Saturday and Sunday. And I'm thinking as we're listening to music here about Elvis and thunderstorms and, of course, my love of local radio. And that had me thinking, hey, how about a podcast with those three topics? I think you're going to enjoy this one. There's a lot of truth in it because it is my story. And I hope you stick around right after this for something I bet you enjoy. Thumbing for a ride on this lonely Kentucky back road. I've loved you much too long. My love's too strong to let you go. Never knowing what went wrong. Kentucky rain keeps pouring down. And up ahead's another town Elvis Presley disappeared from Graceland on August 16, 1977. He was 42 years old. Dan Sears of Memphis radio station WMPS made the first official announcement, and his was the first station to interrupt its programming with the terrible notice. Sears had just finished up his broadcast in mid-afternoon and was taking a commercial break before he was to end the news segment with a short stock market report. While the commercial aired, he was handed a note that stated Elvis Presley had died. The hospital itself had called the station. Sears would be the first broadcaster to break the story. As the day progressed into nighttime, we would learn the king had been found slumped over in his home by his girlfriend, Ginger Alden, and the paramedics had failed to revive him. Presley was officially pronounced dead at the Baptist Memorial Hospital in Memphis by physician George Nicopolis the cause given, erratic heartbeat or cardiac arrhythmia. Only five short years later, shortly before five o'clock in the evening, August 16, 1982, I felt a shortness of tightness in my chest, an anxiety that had accompanied me that entire day when I went on the radio as an announcer for the first time. I parked my Marine Chevette in the parking lot of the small cinder block constructed radio station house, got out, dusted myself off, and prepared to go inside. Upon entering the somewhat cluttered WDOR studio in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin that day, I went immediately to the record stacks. Rows and rows of vinyl records were all alphabetized according to the artist's names and were situated behind the console where I would sit to do my job. I scanned the collection quickly and settled on a recording by The King. I placed the record on the turntable and spoke authoritatively to the station's listeners, my soon-to-be friends. I informed everybody listening in Radioland that Elvis would be taking us to news at the top of the hour. The song ended. I gave the call letters for the station per the Federal Communication Commission and the FCC's requirements and hit the button for ABC News. I breathed a sigh of relief. So began my years in radio. But it's midnight. It's midnight. And I miss you. I miss you. 
As I look back, the worst time in my broadcasting career was that first night on the job when I was left alone in the station. Already very anxious to make a great impression on the listeners, I felt so much tension and pressure. I wanted to, no, I needed to let the station owner know that he had indeed made a good choice when he hired me as the newest voice for the station. I sat alone in the WDOR studio on that Monday evening, and my hands were full. The main studio console served both AM and FM broadcast transmissions. On the AM station, 910 on the dial, President Reagan was streaming live via satellite from the ABC network from the Oval Office about taxes and the budget. On the 93.9 FM side of the dial, adult contemporary music was normally played, but on this night, we were transmitting the Milwaukee Brewers baseball game. Just to the left of the main console was a huge automated machine that contained giant-sized reel-to-reel tapes that provided music for the bulk of the FM programming day. In those days, advertisements were recorded on a cartridge akin to an 8-track tape and were then placed in two large tape carousels next to the music tapes. A side console on that machine allowed for the pre-programmed timing and placement of the ads each hour. I needed to juggle placing ads into the right slots for the breaks during the game, and I had to also simultaneously listen to the ABC radio network and record to audio tape the commercials from the regular newscast, which we were not carrying due to Reagan and the Brewers games. We were still required to air those advertisements later that night. The studio seemed overly hot as I juggled all the various parts of the job because I was fully aware that management was monitoring me and that just about anything could go awry, given all that was taking place. As I sweated it out in the studio, my mind turned to the dark side. When I was in broadcasting school, I had read The Camera Never Blinks, Dan Rather's amusing account of his early career in broadcasting. One story from his days in radio encapsulated perfectly for me those feelings of dread that I was having, those tremors about how far things could go wonky when I was on the air. The famed CBS broadcaster tells of the Sunday morning sermons that came to the station on long play albums. One Sunday, Rather put one of these sermons on the term table to play and knew he had enough time to head into town for some food and still get back before the album was concluded. After making his purchase and returning to his vehicle, he turned the car radio on and heard what must have sounded like a terrific mathematical improbability, if not impossibility. The record had a flaw and the needle had started skipping backwards, repeating the same phrase over and over and over on the air. One might think that was the worst of it, but alas, no, there was more. Not just any phrase assaulted sensibilities over the airwaves emanating from that Huntsville radio station. What the faithful listeners of Texas heard that morning was nothing less than a brimstone preacher shouting, Go to hell! Go to hell! Go to hell! Go to hell! I shuddered at the thought of something similar happening to me. What I didn't fully realize, of course, was that my own turn was coming. I knew from the weather reports throughout that August summer afternoon that severe thunderstorms for the Door County Peninsula were promised. I always loved a good storm, so silently in my heart I prayed for a little magic that evening. I felt deeply that any storm would only enhance the experience of my first night on the radio. I knew that a good clack or two of thunder, maybe a nice downpour, or even some lightning would help me settle in to my task at hand, make the evening more comfortable, to excel, even. 
Indeed, my admiration for Mother Nature represents a lifelong fondness. Whatever she had thrown our way while I was growing up in central Wisconsin was just fine with me. I loved it all, be it the summer theatrics of light displays and rhythmic booms or the blinding winter snows and biting frigid cold. I would love it all, and I never complained. On that fifth anniversary of the King's disappearance, the forecasters were correct. My first night flying solo at the station, the storm clouds gathered and lowered shortly after 7 o'clock, activating the streetlights earlier than usual. I could see from my console through the back door of the studio that the sky was electric. The lightning that night was spectacular, dancing across the horizon. The thunder's studio rocking boom seemed to become more numerous and closer. My adrenaline rush, this was going to be my night, clack. Then I was off the air. Just like that, there was no signal being transmitted from our station. Electrical power was flowing to the station, but our signal was no longer being emitted from the tower. While I knew how to shut down the station at the end of a broadcasting day, having been trained in that since the previous Friday when I arrived at WDOR, I had no information whatsoever about how to turn the power on. It seems it would have been a simple task to just reverse the shutoff procedures and restart our transmission. It wasn't necessarily so. I frantically sought to discover that elusive but useful piece of information which had not been passed along to me in my training. I did not want to do anything to cause damage to the machines. Was there some other order in which the buttons had to be pushed and the levers activated to make it all happen? As I struggled to get back on the air, I also started to comprehend a strange quirk among radio listeners. Back home, when the power went off due to a storm, we logically called the electric company and alerted them to the outage. Who would have guessed that listeners would call a radio station to alert announcers they were off the air? Did people really think broadcasters at a studio would not know when they were no longer transmitting something over the airwaves? Grateful for the help, did I really need the extra stress of answering the phone? The five telephone lines lit up before me. Five little orange buttons on the face of the telephone blinked frenetically, and I was suddenly fielding calls from very well-intentioned people. Yes, yes, thank you for your call. We are indeed experiencing a bit of technical difficulty. Things should be back to normal soon. Yes, oh, hello. Yes, I appreciate your call. Do have a good evening. Hello, WDOR. Yes, thank you for your call. At the same time, I was, of course, trying to figure out what was to be done to set things back on course. I felt a nervous sweat trickle down my back. After about 20 minutes, an orange Corvette sped into the parking lot, and the program director, the station owner's son, entered through the back door of the studio. He sputtered as to why we were off the air. To be very honest, I listened and thought the interrogation to be a trick series of questions akin to seeing a person typing and asking what was taking place. Was it not obvious why I was just sitting in the studio and talking to most of our audience via the phone? The program director seemed to imply that turning our transmitter back on was somehow an intuitive process from which everyone comes equipped. He soon discovered that was not the case and that I was not evidently aware of how to do it. He stood behind me, drenched by the storm's rains, and pushed the right buttons in just the right order and resumed our broadcast. The AM station would have been on the brink of going off the air for the night, the FM station's game would have been resumed as if nothing had happened, and I would thank graciously all those phone callers who still were lighting up my phone buttons. The station owner's son, well, I suspect he went home and poured himself a drink. 
That is how my days in radio started, and also how the first book that I wrote, Walking Up the Ramp, also begins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and come again to visit us here in Dodie Land. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I hope you have a great day.